Thursday, I was in uh, I was in Dallas, Texas. I was the manager for the North Texas team, and he said, "Carlos, you speak Spanish, right?" I said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> Great, we're uh, we're growing in Europe, and we need somebody to lead uh, Spain and Portugal. And I'd like to know if you'd want to you'd want to move out there and do that for us. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. Professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now, here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have Carlos De La Torre, the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer from Trip Actions. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, I'd love to get started with these. Just a little bit about your background and, you know, where you're from, how you grew up, and just to give the audience a little flavor into who you were before, you know, you became this big tech mogul guru guy. I don't know about the tech mogul guru <laughs> part, but let's see. Uh, I grew up in Miami, a suburb of Miami. My, uh, my family emigrated from Cuba in the late 50s. And uh, I grew up in Miami, went to college in Miami, and then in Alabama before stumbling into tech. Yeah. And you know, you went to the University of Miami, right? And um, so, you know, I would love to hear about how you, you know, first got into sales to begin with. Oh, gosh. I think it's all I've ever done. Probably my first sales jobs were in retail. I guess my first one would be... Uh, the one that I got fired from, it was at Maria's Ice Cream Palace. And uh, I was working the counter and I was too loose with the toppings. And after several warnings, my cousin Felix came in and, uh, and I, I did him up. And that was my last day at Maria's. But uh, after that, I let's see, I, I worked at the mall. I sold men's clothes and I worked at a car dealership. And then during college, I sold copiers. After college, my first quote unquote, you know, real or corporate job was at a medical equipment company called Coulter. And then it was after that that I got into tech. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the medical field and then, you know, I know this because I know you, you went to PTC and that place is pretty um, notorious for breeding or hiring. I'm not sure what, you know, a chicken egg situation here, but just very successful sales professionals. A lot of our clients have had long stints at PTC and really learned a ton there that they brought in on, you know, later on in their careers to the companies that they now lead. Yeah, that's true. PTC had an amazing sales culture. I think it's uh, a little chicken and a little egg. They hired well, very well. I joined there as a sales rep, but I eventually became a manager. So um, I learned what they look for. But then also, it was a place that had great training and really great execution and um, did a lot of things well at a time when it was not very common. Certainly within tech, having a, a sales organization of that caliber, I think was fairly rare back then. 
Yeah, you know, and interestingly enough, you know, we we talked about okay, it's it's both of the you know the training that they offer there and the people that they hired, and you know what was it that they were looking for that you looked for um, because obviously you grew into leadership there during your career. Yeah, my own uh, sort of opinion and thoughts on sort of ideal profile have evolved. But the term that was used inside of PTC was an Ivy League street fighter. And what they meant by that was somebody who was smart, who had a good educational background and was tough and and street smart, so to speak. But what they ended up doing was they looked at industries where they thought there was an abundance of aggressive uh, salespeople. And so Primarily, they recruited out of uh, the medical industry and copiers. And somebody could go to PTC and suddenly be earning maybe you know a, a meaningful increase from what they were earning in medical or or copiers. Uh, I think you know typical starting salary there for an enterprise sales rep was probably thirty or forty percent higher than it was in those other industries. And so they could really be picky and sort of take the best of the best. Out of those two industries, and then you know train them uh, aggressively, and it was very much a meritocracy culture where you know people who executed were rewarded and got promoted, but people who didn't didn't last there either. Right? Yeah. No. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> no, cutthroat. No. Right. I know, and and especially knowing a lot of the leaders that came from there, I think that a lot of it is too. Where you know, and I think now in today's day and age, most successful CROs, you know, do a strong vetting process, but also a little bit more of a process surrounding you know if it's not the right fit, parting ways, uh, maybe in a little bit different way than than back in those PTC days. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I forgot to dig into earlier, you had mentioned that your family had immigrated from Cuba. Mm-hmm. And then I know this because you told me that your grandparents met in Little Havana in Miami. So you you speak fluent Spanish? I do. It was actually my parents who met. Oh. My grandparents emigrated from Cuba and they were married already. And my, uh, my parents um, met in Little Havana. My mom came over when she was a teenager and my dad was uh, in his early 20s. Well, and so you know, at PTC, I just love the story about how you ended up in Barcelona. Ah, well, the company was growing quickly and especially in Europe. And I got a call from uh, John McMahon on a... Thursday, I was in uh, I was in Dallas, Texas. I was the manager for the North Texas team, and he said, "Carlos, you speak Spanish, right?" I said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> Great, we're uh, we're growing in Europe, and we need somebody to lead uh, Spain and Portugal. And I'd like to know if you'd want to you'd want to move out there and do that for us. And I I was very flattered and honored, and I asked him if I could get back to him, and he said, "No problem. Take your time. Let me know by tomorrow." And uh, and so by Friday afternoon, I accepted the job, and uh, and I was in Barcelona on Sunday and uh, working the following week. I would have worked Monday, but it was a holiday. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I just love that, Carlos. You speak. It was Spanish. definitely a bias for action. It was a bias for <laughs> you, you. You speak Spanish, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you are. You know, mm-hmm. moving out to Barcelona. So eventually, you moved on from PTC. Yep. And you, know, why? So um, in the late 90s, I guess it was 99, I had a buddy, Ara, who I knew from 
my days in healthcare before PTC. And uh, we used to get together sometimes after work on Fridays at the Palomino. I think it's, I don't think it's there anymore. The Palomino <laughs> Bar. I've been there. Many a happy yeah, hour a, had there for sure. It was a great place. Great place. And we were at Palomino and, you know, back in late 99, the internet was really like, you couldn't not talk about the internet, uh, especially in San Francisco. So like everybody else, we're talking about the internet. And the thing we had in common was healthcare. And so we uh, started talking about how the internet might change you know, medical supply and medical equipment. And we came up with what was, in retrospect, a not very good idea for an internet business that would basically resell used medical equipment. And, uh, but we were, we, were, we were proud of ourselves uh, for the idea at the moment. And uh, at the end of the night, he mentioned, hey, by the way, I'm going to see if I can get a, an appointment with a VC to pitch them on that idea. And I thought, yeah, what a, what a great idea, and, but really didn't, didn't think anything would come of it. And sure enough, early the next week, he called me and said, hey, I've got us a meeting at Acacia Venture Partners. And uh, we were there, I want to say the following Friday, Friday after the, uh, the Friday we had drinks. And uh, Acacia said, hey, we, we think your idea uh, is crummy. And they were right. But we like the two of you. And would you come in and join, uh, join us in an entrepreneur in residence uh, as entrepreneurs in residence? And so we felt like it was the opportunity of a lifetime. And uh, they threw us into a closet. And we spent the next uh, 90 days working through a business plan, which eventually uh, they thought was good enough to share with other VCs. And we did and uh, got a company funded. And that company became something called Embion after merging with another company with a similar idea. But all that's to say that uh, I spent about a year chasing a dot-com dream that overlapped with the implosion of the dot-com bubble. And so we had big aspirations and, and lofty goals, but the market sort of fell apart on us. And so uh, that was a short-lived, uh, short-lived but super interesting pursuit. What was it like? And I've heard it from a lot of people. I was in college from 99 to 2003. So I like missed this whole amazingness and I guess not so amazingness that was yeah. happening uh, in the Bay Area at the time. But, you know, it just, it seemed different than it is today where, you know, there was a lot of money floating around, but a lot of belief in the startups. And, but, you know, just from, anecdotal stuff from other people. Uh, but the ecosystem just seemed to be, you know, especially during the like real bubble, the rise, just, you know, infectious and amazing and just so much energy. Totally, Carolyn. There was a lot of money floating around. And I think when you hear about it now, that seems to be what people talk about. But the thing that I remember even more is what you just referenced is was the energy, the buzz. There was this naive belief that technology could solve every problem and every idea was up for grabs. And, uh, and this belief that this moment was like a turning point and all of humanity and everything and every life as we know it would be so different in the future. And obviously it imploded uh, in the early, you know, in 2000 and 2001, well, really 2000, it imploded from a financial perspective. But I can say that many of, uh, you know, the wheels were set in motion during those 
you know, the heyday of the late 90s. And many of those ideas, maybe the initial companies didn't make it, but many of those ideas then got refined and reincarnated. And the companies that the next wave of companies, many of them really did, you know, change industries. And, and obviously now with the benefit of hindsight, the world truly is very different. So I think, I think the thing that was beautiful was how exciting and, uh, you know, the universe of possibilities and everyone's belief in the universe of possibilities. And, uh, the thing that people got wrong at the time was they overestimated how quickly and how much could be accomplished in the short term. But I would say they, myself included, underestimated the impact in the long run. Like, you know, Amazon was on the brink of running out of money and everybody, you know, laughed at Jeff Bezos whenever he, you know, gave presentations, especially after the bubble burst, because no one thought they'd be around, you know, in, in six months. And obviously now they're the most valuable company on the planet. And you know, there are many other examples like that. Absolutely. So I can't remember the exact year. My guess is it was about 2012 was when you and I met for the first time. Uh, you were the VP of sales at ClearSlide. You would come in there and uh, you know they had raised a significant amount of capital and you were hired to take the company to the next level. And, you know, and one of the things I really remember about you and, and that has stood out to me throughout our relationship is, you know, the value that you've placed on building teams. And I would love for you because, you know, there, there's our audience is, you know, all different types of people, but, you know, a lot of them are aspiring sales leaders and people that, you know, would love to be in your shoes one day. And, you know, I would love to hear a little bit from you about your evolution as a sales leader, you know, from PTC to, you know, when we met at ClearSlide, even now to today uh, in you know, running trip actions of, you know, what is your thesis around talent and building teams? Well, yeah, that's a big question. Nothing matters more than talent. It is the top priority for any sales leader. Well, it should be anyway. It's my top priority. So identifying, attracting, qualifying, and retaining top talent is the most important thing that a sales leader does. And I think if a sales leader can do that well and does everything else just mediocre, they will probably still be super successful. If a sales leader is mediocre at recruiting and exceptional at everything else, mediocre results is the all they will ever, ever drive because it all boils down to people in tech. And so uh, I do put a lot of, uh, a lot of importance. <clears throat> Similarly, I put a lot of importance in pipeline generation. I think it's one of the most important things that salespeople do. And the two are very similar. One is, uh, one is doing the work required to add new opportunities to, uh, to the forecast. The other is doing the work to add uh, new potential sellers to the team. But it's, it's kind of the analog. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I obviously we've met multiple, multiple times, but I can always tell a leader who really believes in talent when they get my cell phone number and text me. It's so funny because, you know, you've now worked, we've worked together at four different companies. 
things, right? Clear Slide, Mongo, Vera, and now at Trip Actions. And we definitely have each other on the bat phone. And there's not a lot of CROs that take the time to build relationships. You know, a lot of that is delegated. And obviously, you do a tremendous job delegating to your team. But, you know, it's one of those things that in the position that we're in, we prioritize clients where the the leader prioritizes hiring, if that makes sense. And, you know, you're one of the people that, that has really stood out over the years. So you ran the show at ClearSlide for, you know, about two years. And then Mongo was checking somebody's references. And so you know, I'd love to hear the story about how you, you know, obviously you, you helped take that company public and, and had a great run there, but it seemed very kind of um, opportunistic that you even ended up, you know, landing that opportunity in the first place. Yeah, I was gainfully employed at, uh, at ClearSlide and uh, Dave Itacheria, who was the CEO newly hired uh, CEO over at MongoDB, called me uh, looking, for, uh, looking for references. He knew I had moved to the, to the West Coast and MongoDB is based in, in New York. And through the course of that, uh, of that conversation, I threw my hat in the ring. And you know, a, a couple of months later, I, I, was, uh, I was happy to have, quote unquote, landed the job and, and, had, a, and had a fabulous time and made some great friends and uh, had a wonderful experience at MongoDB. I think that Mongo in general, like now I didn't realize they were based in New York because mm-hmm. we started working with them. They had an office on university. Yep. And Ben Sabrin, it was called something else. Um, and Jen. It was called Ten Ten Gen. Gen. Yes. Yep. And so fill me in on that, right? Like the Tengen, because I thought that they were based there in Palo Alto on university when Ben was running the team. And that, you know, at some point they hired you to take over. I don't remember the whole exact chronological events that happened along the way, but that's my recollection. And I thought it was a rebrand of a company that was based in Silicon Valley for a more clear name of what exactly the company was about. Yeah. So um, I think the... This history that I'm about to to share happens before I joined MongoDB, but it was founded by three people in New York. And they set out to build a platform as a service. So a database, an app server, and a web server. And they wanted to make it easier for developers to build new apps. And they open sourced uh, the whole platform, and that it was called Ten Gen. I believe that's you know for like tenth generation. I'm not I'm not exactly sure if that's where the name came from, but I assume so. And as they open sourced the components of this uh, of this platform, they found that the uptake, the downloads of the database piece, were far far outstripping the other components, the app server, the web server. There might have been other pieces in there, and so. Before I joined, they decided to to pivot or refocus the company more narrowly on being a database. And so they had called the database MongoDB, as in humongous. And so that's why they named the company MongoDB. The CEO before David Echiria was based on the West Coast. And so I think as a result of him being there, they officially had 
dual headquarters, New York and Palo Alto, but more of the executives and all of the founders were out east. And so when the transition happened over to David Echiria, then the company you know, fully became a New York-based company. And it just so happened that a, a few of the execs were in Palo Alto. Megan Eisenberg, who was the CMO, our general counsel, I think it was just the three of us. And then the rest of the execs were out east. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I still remember going in there and meeting with one of your sales leaders to help build the New York team. And for us, like, you know, I had always thought Mongo was based out of the Bay Area. And so walking in there, I was like, wow. You know, most of our, you know, if you're headquartered in New York, you have a huge New York office. If you're headquartered in, you know, whatever, and they have smaller offices on the coast that they're not headquartered on. And so I was like, wow, this company, and obviously you guys were doing very well. But that was my thought when I had gone in there of like, wow, if their New York office is this huge, they, they must be really crushing it. And, you know, so I would love to hear about, you know, and you've been through... I'm trying to count back, but you know, multiple exits. And you know, how many companies have you been at during the time of IPO? IPO would be uh, two, Blade Logic and MongoDB. And at Blade, you weren't in the full CRO role, correct? You correct. Were in a I ran the role. East. And you know, but so Mongo, you know, you go in there, you, you know, you, these guys were looking for names, you, you know, you, and yeah, I, it's interesting, right? Coming from the recruiting world of like, that's a classic way to get a candidate, right? I, I had saw when I, you had mentioned references, I thought they were checking a reference for another employee, but he was just asking, hey, do you know anyone that might be interested? And so clearly he was thinking potentially you, obviously. And... You know, maybe, maybe not because he knew me well. He was the CEO. He had previously been the CEO at Blade Logic as well. So um, he could have just, you know, come straight out and... Uh, and approach me about it. So I wonder, I wonder. I'll have to ask him sometime. Right? Like, was that a, like, kind of interested in you question or or what? But, you know, I, and I think a lot of people that look at Mongo or, you know, any company that, you know, has such an epic exit, really, that's the the pinnacle. And I would love to hear from you about, you know, you know, clearly you won the market through execution. But, you know, what were the big struggles that you, you know, when you walked into that company in order to get it from you coming in and, and starting and being tasked with scaling revenue, what were the ups and downs along the way, you know, in order to get to that, you know, that epic exit? Well, I'd say when I walked in figuratively, the first order of business was to was to assess the team and optimize the team, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, you know, it started with the leadership. So I became intimate quickly with, uh, with all of the sales leaders and assessed their skills and their, and their values and their aptitude and quickly <clears throat> made some, you know, made some adjustments and uh, brought in some new leaders. And we set out to do that down the organization. So my first few months on board were there was a lot of uh, personnel changes. There were lots of personnel changes. Then I'd say some of the uh, next sort of big objectives were to provoke new behaviors. So not the least of which was outbound pipeline generation. So previously, MongoDB being an open source company, they had built their go-to-market motion really around 
responding to inbound inquiries and really responding to customers that who were using the free version who said, hey, you know, we'd be interested in having a financial relationship with you. And so that continued to happen, but there wasn't enough of that to really fuel a, you know, a high-growing company. And so we needed a sales organization that would actually go out and provoke those conversations in, uh, you know, in prospects. So we got the team you know, doing outbound pipeline generation. We up-leveled the messaging that the team was using. We worked with a fantastic company called Force Management. And they helped us revamp our value prop and, and really uh, build a, a messaging framework that could make salespeople you know, very effective, no matter who they were talking to, no matter how senior or what the role. And once we got both you know, pipeline generation muscles built and sort of that engine turning, we really turned to getting better and better at building champions in accounts, which had a lot to do with messaging and had to do with really good discovery and then ultimately qualification so that the sales team knew which deals to focus on and knew what the gaps were in those deals. And, and so I think once, once we got the sales team to be better at generating new pipeline, building champions, and qualifying deals, we sort of did that first pass through, I'd say, brute force and heavy lifting. But then we set out to put an enablement function and program in place. And I'm proud to say, you know, when I look back on it, ultimately, we had a, a really strong enablement program. And what that did was that enabled us to recruit at scale where we could recruit people who didn't know anything about databases, but had good sales aptitude and sales skills, and then drop them into this enablement. And within a few weeks, they could do pipeline generation. And with a few months, they were fully ramped and able to run full sales cycles. So those are some of the key things that uh, we did in the first year or so. Yeah, it was interesting because I remember building, you know, we worked with you to a lot of the teams, but specifically the SDR team for a company that is that highly technical. Generally, the requirement is a more highly technical rep. But with what you built, you were really able to take that, you know, DNA type of candidate or person and put them into the program and, you know, Obviously, not every single person was successful, but have a very high level of likelihood of success because of the process and the operational savviness that you that you put behind it. So I think that that's that's really interesting. And obviously, walking through all that, like it's a lot of work, and a lot of companies really do sit back and just wait for leads to come. And especially nowadays with all the demand gen marketing, it almost it, it's interesting because I know Trip Actions where you are today had pre-COVID a tremendous amount of demand and you know a lot of people using the free version, etc. And you know my buddy Brandon Binder who you know I I grew up with uh, in the East Bay, he was my my brother and him were best men in each other's wedding. I mean Carlos, I still remember looking at that he had just started at Trip Actions when the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh man, you know, not a great time to start at a travel company. But you know, it, it was interesting because you know I, I got to hear a lot from Brandon from his perspective about your leadership and of what you look for in a candidate, and you know that one of the main things that you look for your leaders to qualify is ability 
to build their own pipeline. And, you know, you have one of the best marketing leaders, in the, you know, uh, Maggie and Eisenberg. And, you know, you guys obviously have invested tremendously in marketing. I see your ads every time I go travel to any airport, you know, especially at SFO, I always see them out there. So it's not that you guys aren't doing marketing, but the expectation that you have for every person in your company or that's in the revenue generating sales role is that they build their own pipeline. And I'm interested, you know, especially in today's day and age, especially with all of the investments that you guys have done in marketing, is you know, why is that still so important to you? Because it, it doesn't always seem necessary, especially to a lot of companies where the thing oh, we don't even need to do outbound sales because we have so many inbound leads, right? Like it's I hear it every day. So fill me in. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. So one minor clarification, salespeople here at Trip Actions or at, or at any team that, that I've run, they don't build all of their pipeline, but all of them build pipeline. And uh, the reasons for that, there's a handful of them. First, the obvious reason is if you have AEs also building pipeline, then you have more pipeline. Uh, but we also have SDRs building pipeline. We have marketing building pipeline. That's the obvious reason. Why else though? What is it about pipeline generation that is, uh, that's so important? Well, it turns out it's the hardest thing that anyone in sales ever does. To call someone who doesn't know anything about you or doesn't know anything about your company and convince them in a few seconds to spend 30 seconds with you. And in those first 30 seconds, to convince them to spend a few minutes with you and ultimately to close them for a meeting and, and to build a sales cycle out of that. Well, that requires a few things. One is it requires a lot of effort and discipline and tenacity, but it also requires people to be very fluent with the message. They have to be, uh, to borrow the football term, audible ready based on the role of the individual, based on how they answer or how they interact in the first you know, few seconds of the conversation. And so they have to be very present in that moment. And in order to be very present, they have to have a strong command of their value prop. Now let's fast forward in the sales cycle. When salespeople get stuck in a sales cycle, why is it? Typically, it's because they don't have a champion or their champion is not strong enough to take them to the economic buyer or the competition has a champion who is stronger. How do you solve any of those problems? You solve those problems by getting other people in the account interested in what you do. And guess what that is? That's pipeline generation. But if salespeople don't ever have to generate their own pipeline, then they're not ever able to get wide or get high in their accounts because they lack the skills to call someone and get them interested in a short period of time. So it makes them far better sellers. It improves the win rate on the deals that they engage with. And then there's another sort of dynamic that happens is when a sales team, when sales reps feel that pipeline generation is quote unquote somebody else's problem, whether that's somebody else's the SDRs or marketing, it's just human nature. They tend to get finicky, like Morris the cat. Remember Morris the cat? And so leads are just quote unquote not good enough, not good enough. And you end up getting this tension between sales and marketing or between sales and SDRs that's really unhealthy. And so when salespeople fully appreciate how hard it is to get a meeting, they take more care of a meeting that is sourced for them by their SDRs or by marketing. And so you get this like virtuous cycle of more pipeline, 
salespeople who are more effective in their deals, and then a higher close rate on their own deals, as well as a higher conversion rate on SDR sourced and marketing sourced meetings. So for all those reasons and others, I think it's a critical ingredient to a high-performing sales team. I also think that if you have a company that is selling a solution that is truly better than the alternatives, and you want to take that market, I don't think you can take that market as quickly if you don't have a sales team that is out there provoking companies to consider what they're doing today and and potentially move to to your solution. Right. To think differently, right? And and yeah, it's interesting. So um, are you telling me that in your company, the blame game doesn't exist? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... You know, there's there's transparency, there's candor, and we have we absolutely have that. And I think those are critical ingredients to a winning culture. But shirking responsibility, blaming another person or another group, you know, for my own shortcomings, that doesn't hold water. No, that's that's not your game for sure. So, you know, it's interesting you just mentioned culture. Right. And, you know, I, I would love to, and I think a lot of the leaders out there, especially during this time where, you know, a lot of the things that we had done to build culture before are, are no longer possible. And, you know, just in general, I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how you build a great culture, what that looks like, what is involved with that to really build, you know, a high performing sales organization. It's tempting to think that culture is really good snacks in a nice office or you know values painted on the walls. And hey, those things are great and they can serve as a nice reinforcement. But I think a great culture, again, going back to team, it starts with the talent. If you look to your left and you look to your right and you respect the people on both sides of you and you think, wow, they're better than me in some ways. Uh, well, that elevates everyone's game. So uh, the term, there's a great book, uh, No Rules Rules by uh, Reed Hoffman of Netflix. He talks about talent density, having high talent density. I think that's where it starts. But then beyond having high talent density, I think some of the other critical ingredients to a winning culture are candor, talking about things as they really are. With candor, and high talent density, then you can have you know, real conversations about, about problems and come up with real solutions. I think also having a commitment to growth, not just growth of the business, and obviously that's, that's part of it, that's the game that we play, but growth of the individuals where the company, the team, the leaders, and, and the individuals themselves are all committed to growing. Well, then what happens is if you have great people, if you operate with transparency and you communicate with candor, if everyone is growing, well, that then sets the stage for making meritocratic personnel decisions. And for people in sales, most of them, the thing they want more than anything else is to grow their careers and get promoted. And so being in a place where they are inspired by their team members. They get real honest feedback. They have an organization and leaders who invest in them and their skills. And then they get rewarded, not just by compensation, but through promotions. They get rewarded for their efforts. That is incredibly inspiring. And that drives, in my opinion, a really positive culture. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you look at that. And I think a lot of people can really think about when they've been in those situations, how, you know, I like the looking to the left, looking to the right of like, you know, are these people better than me? And surrounding yourselves with, you know, people that are super, super motivated and want to be there and are going to put in the work. And so, you know, let's talk a little bit more about trip actions. Obviously, you know, unicorn company, right? And it became that way. Now, how much money had trip actions raised when you started? Oh, let's see. Somewhere between three and 400 million. Oh, already. Okay. Wow. But now a lot of that... And you know, I, I think it's interesting the way that you guys look at your revenue numbers. And it's different than you know, a lot of you know, various different SaaS companies because you know you obviously you have the license, but really what you're looking at is is travel spend that people are booking. You know, and for you, obviously, you're in charge of the B two B side, where corporate travel being booked on on the platform. That's right. Correct? Yeah, the term we use is uh, the acronym is TBUM, Travel Budget Under Management. So that's just the aggregate travel budget of our customers. And so. You know, I, I think it's really interesting because, you know, spoiler alert for everyone that's listening, Trip Actions is in a really, really good position coming out of this pandemic. And I think a lot of people that look from the outside think, wow, that's kind of an effed company right now with corporate travel being such a, you know, on absolute pause. Seriously, you're smiling, but right? Like if you didn't work there and you weren't running sales, you'd probably think the same thing. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> with disruptions, and and I think you know, we can definitely call the COVID nineteen pandemic a major disruption of global corporate travel. With disruptions come opportunity, and uh, my mom always said, uh, "Life's not about what happens; it's about what you do about it." And um, I'm proud of what trip actions quote unquote did about it and what we did about it is the engineers doubled down and made the product a product that was already far better than the alternatives they made it even better and they made it even better in ways that are particularly relevant to a company wanting to manage travel during and especially after the covid lockdown we accelerated the development of our second product and expense and payment management solution that basically says goodbye to all the pain associated with doing expense reports, reviewing them, reconciling. The whole expense management and expense reporting process gets completely eliminated by our expense management solution. So from a product perspective, the team executed in an amazing way during this period. And then within sales, you know, March and April were really tough while we figured out our value prop. How do we call people and talk about travel in the midst of this pandemic? And then we figured out, hey, there's actually a really good opportunity here. Travel is going to be more difficult to manage after COVID. And your road warriors are not traveling, so you won't disrupt them very much. And your finance and travel management people have more bandwidth because they're not managing a bunch of travel. And so maybe now is a really good time to rethink how you manage travel and how you will manage it post pandemic. And so, you know, we figured out our how to message what we do. And all that's to say that uh, we, we actually had a really good year. We grew our book of business more than 60%. And um, we tripled the number of Fortune 500 customers we have. 
We actually did more new business in 2020 than we did in 2019, but with 38% fewer people in sales. And the company uh, recently secured a, a round of funding at a valuation 25% higher than where it was at at the beginning of COVID. So I can't wait for it to be over, but it was actually a, a period of a lot of growth for our business. And you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, disruption often you know presents opportunities for people or for companies, I should say. You know, there were over 200 car companies before the Great Depression, and three of them emerged. And uh, you know, Ford, Chrysler, and, and GM. And I was in New York during 9/11, and I saw something interesting happen right after 9/11, which is companies had to come up with a robust strategy for recovering in the case of a disaster. And standing up a second data center wasn't financially feasible. And there was a struggling e-commerce company that figured out the value prop for uh, renting its excess compute capacity. And, and that's where AWS was really, you know, came into its own. And here we are 20 years later, and everybody knows AWS. But at the time, you know, Amazon saw an opportunity there and seized it. And so anyway, uh, this COVID pandemic has has really presented uh, trip actions with, I think, a special opportunity and the companies coming out far, far stronger than we went in. So when was the last business trip you went on? It was during right as COVID broke. I was in London that week when the headlines were filled with what was happening in Italy. I remember I went to London on Sunday and my wife asked me before I went, are you sure you should go with eyes on? And I, I was, I was pretty dismissive. <laughs> it's it's going to be fun. It's no big deal. <laughs> it's just this is a, you know, it's an isolated thing. And as the week went on, the news just started getting more and more dire. And I, I actually cut my trip short and flew back on a basically empty plane on either I think either Wednesday or Thursday of that week. So that was the last business trip I was on. Can't wait to get back. Well, at least you got to like, you know, I kind of close it out well. But, you know, I always hate it when my spouse is right, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, you get home and it's like, I told you so. I've learned to live with it, Carolyn. It happens. <laughs> I, I'm sure. But yeah, no, I mean, honestly, you know, I obviously am, am part of a, a much smaller company than you, but I, I've done a little bit of travel uh, during COVID and, you know, more for business things just myself than, you know, involving people on my team. And I just, I can't tell you how much I can't wait to, you know, fly my whole team out to Austin and, you know, get everyone together and, and then also, you know, conferences and, you know, all of the things that really, you know, First of all, are what are help to drive business, but just you know seeing people and you know being you know for us in such a relationship driven business um, and me loving that myself. I just I can't wait to get back on the road. So and we are still Trip Ashton's customers, even though it's been a little dormant. And so can't wait to see that spend. Uh, <laughs> not that we're your we're actually probably not your target customer. You're no you're looking at like. Fortune 1000 companies and all that. But anyway, Carlos, any finishing thoughts that you would like to share, you know, with our audience about, you know, building companies, overcoming adversity, taking their careers and themselves to the next level? I'll pick up on the last part of your question. So career, whenever I have an opportunity to give anyone career advice, I always say the same thing. And that is, Resist the temptation to optimize for comp or title or a number of other things and really optimize for 
the best situation that meets a couple of criteria. One is a company that's growing. You want to be in a company that's growing quickly because if the company's growing quickly, then and it operates in a meritocratic way, then the thing that will determine how quickly you get promoted is you. If the company's got problems, if the market's not very big or the product has issues, then you might do everything right as a salesperson or a sales leader, but the company's just doesn't need the next role, doesn't need you know the manager, and therefore you have a ceiling there holding you back. So first thing is go to great companies and great companies have big markets, great products and great execution. And then number two is go work for the best boss that you can because that is who's going to have the biggest impact on your development, on your growth. That's who's going to mentor you and coach you. And so you know, go work for the best boss and the company with the best training because that's where you'll grow your skills and go work for the best company because that's when you'll get promoted as soon as you're ready. And even if that means a lower comp or not as glamorous a title, or you know, in my case, uh, a few times it meant not the city that I really wanted to live in, but the city where the job was. And so uh, that's probably the, the best advice I can give. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, I know your time is very valuable. And yeah, I can't wait to meet up again in person, some, hopefully sometime in the not so near future. I think, uh, I think it won't be too long, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 